Genesis chapter 30. I'm, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read a large portion of it, but I want to start with the first five verses. Let's read that together. Genesis chapter 30, verses 1 through 5. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Let me read the next verse. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. What I want to draw your attention to in the very first verse is this phrase, She bore Jacob no children. Rachel envied her sister. The scripture reveals to us that Rachel envied her sister. Well, let's pray as we go into God's word. Father, we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and give to us a revelation of Christ through the, through the scripture. Lord, in revealing Christ to us, reveal who we are. Lord, reveal who we are apart from you and reveal who we are joined to you in life. Father, we pray that as we look to the scripture that you would change us and transform us. Lord, that we would no longer be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let the world see Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the scripture tells us that Rachel envied her sister. And what this means is that Rachel's desire for children was motivated by envy of her sister when it should have been motivated by the glory of God and the fulfillment of his promise given to Jacob. We saw this back in Genesis 28. Let's read that. Genesis 28, 13 through 15. This is when Jacob has left Isaac and his home and he comes to this place and he has the dream of the ladder that was set up. And God was uh, standing above uh, at the top of the ladder. And it says, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south, and in you all your and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, 
and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. This was God's promise made to Jacob before Jacob ever had a wife. So here is Jacob, a single man who is going to the land, the country of his father, of his grandfather, Abraham. And he is going there for the express purpose of finding a wife and bringing this wife back to his father's land. And we talked about how this is a type and a shadow. It's a picture of Christ who left his father's land, who came into this land, this hostile land, and took for himself a bride and returned to his father's land. But here I wanted to draw your attention to the promise that God gave Jacob before Jacob ever got to Laban's house, before he ever got to that well, before he ever laid eyes on Rachel, before any of that ever happened. This is God's promise to Jacob that he would be a great nation, that he would have descendants as the sand of the earth, and that those descendants would spread out to the east, the west, the north, the south, and they would bless through him and through his seed, bless all the families of the earth. And so Rachel, the one whom Jacob loved, remember he worked seven years to get Rachel, but Laban tricked him and gave him Leah instead. Then he worked another seven years and got Rachel But Rachel could not give Jacob any children. Leah had given Jacob already four sons. And Rachel began to envy Leah. And she was angry at Jacob because Jacob had not given her any children. It was not for a lack of trying. And she lashes out at Jacob and says, give me children or I will die. She's like a little kid who's really having a temper tantrum. Um, But she had a reason to be distraught because to not have children was not a good thing. Uh, In that time especially, it was a reproach to be barren. And Rachel was barren, and her sister Leah had already produced for Jacob four sons. And so Rachel cries out, but her cry was motivated from a heart that envied her sister. That's not a good thing. She should have been motivated by the glory of God in the fulfillment of his promise to Jacob. There's someone else that we encounter in the scripture that was motivated by envy. His name is Satan. And this was Satan's motivation uh, when he wanted to take what was not rightfully his. By force, by violence, he wanted to take a position. He wanted to take equality with God. He wanted to actually ascend above God. And we see the contrast between Satan recorded for us in Philippians chapter 2 and it says Jesus did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's kind kind of a weird way to put it in the English, but if we understand what it's really saying is there, there is that Jesus never considered taking by force. Instead, he humbled himself. He didn't do what Satan did and try to take it. He instead humbled himself 
became obedient to the point of death. And it wasn't through Jesus taking something, trying to become equal with God. It was through Jesus' humility and his obedience and his death on the cross. And from that, God, the scripture tells us, highly exalted Jesus and gave to him the name that is above all names. That's recorded in Philippians chapter 2. So we see this contrast. Satan was motivated by envy and followed his own will to gain what he wanted in his own way and his own time. Jesus was motivated only by the glory of his Father and followed the Father's will to gain what the Father wanted in the Father's way and the Father's time. And as God's children... As followers of Jesus, as children of God, we should never be motivated by envy. Another word for envy is covetousness. To envy is to covet. We should never be motivated by envy or covetousness, but should trust that God will bring about His purpose in His way, in His time, for His own glory in Christ. This does not, listen to me, church, this does not relieve us of our responsibility, but it reveals truly what our responsibility is. And our responsibility, first and foremost, is to trust God. So here's Rachel, who is envious of her sister because she's seen her sister have four sons, and she's not had one yet. And she lashes out in anger toward Jacob. Jacob lashes back at her and says, Am I in the place of God? God is the one who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. In other words, Jacob says to his wife, he says, Don't complain to me, complain to God. I don't have control over your womb. God does. And God has not opened your womb and given you a child yet. And so what was Rachel's solution? Take my maid. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is what Sarah and Abraham did. Sarah says to Abraham, look, I can't give you a child. Maybe take my maid and she'll give you a child for me. This is exactly what Rachel did. Here, take my maid, Bilhah, and she will give me a child on my knees. And Bilhah had two children, actually. Gave Jacob two sons. So, Exodus 20, verse 17, the last commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. This is the Tenth Commandment. To covet or to envy is to sinfully see and want what another has. Anybody ever been guilty of that? I mean, we do it all the time, and we don't think about it being sinful. We look at a car, or we look at a house, or we look at, um, it could be anything. It could be something as big as that. It could be something as small as an article of clothing or a trinket. It, it could be anything. It's, it's not what we covet, it's that we covet. What we covet is not the sin, it's that we covet. That is sinful. And that's not to say that we should never desire things. It's never to say that we can't look at something 
that someone has and say, oh, that is really beautiful. I, I wish I had one of those. I think there's a, there's a right way. There's a way we can do that where it's not sinful to look at something and say, wow, I like that. But there's also a, a sinful way we can do that. There's a way that we can live life with covetous eyes where we are constantly seeing what we do not have that others do and we desire that in a sinful way. Now, this is how Rachel looked upon her sister Leah and the children Leah was able to have. She looked at Leah with envy or with, with a covetous heart. Specifically, Rachel looked at Leah with a lustful, resentful, envious heart. And that is sin. So to covet what another has not only leads to great unhappiness. You know, if you live your life like that, always wanting what you don't have, it leads to great unhappiness. If you live your life like that, it's very hard to be Thanksgiving. Here we are on just the other side of Thanksgiving. And if we live our lives always wanting what others have, it's very difficult for us to be thankful for what we do have, isn't it? I mean, think about Rachel. Jacob didn't have to work another seven years for Rachel, but he did. And Rachel didn't have any children by Jacob yet. But instead of seeing the blessing that was given to her, even though she had no children yet, she chose to see what she didn't have and become envious and resentful toward her sister and toward her husband and toward her God. Now, she might not have said that, but this is what we need to understand. When we're envious, when we covet, our sin is not against the person we covet or the thing we covet. Our sin ultimately is against God because what we're saying to God is, I'm really not thankful for what I have. I want more. I want something else. And that's not to say that we should never have ambition in life, that we shouldn't desire to improve or to grow. Please don't misunderstand me. There's a right way to do that, and there's a very wrong way to do that. It seems like our culture has become very good at enforcing the wrong way to do that. And we're tempted all the time. I mean, you know, if you watch, just watch television, all, this is what commercials are designed to do. They're, to, they're designed to make us covet. They're designed to make us want what we don't have. And what we do with that desire and how we handle that desire becomes very important because it will then determine a chain of events that may or may not take place in our quest to, to get what we want. So to covet what another has leads to great unhappiness. It is a lack of trust in God's sovereign grace that rules over our life. Do you believe that God sovereignly ruled over Rachel's life and over Rachel's womb? Do you think it was God's plan and purpose that he would open Rachel's womb and give Rachel children eventually? Absolutely. Do you know who the two children Rachel gave to Jacob? It was the last two children. It was the last two sons. It was Joseph 
and it was Benjamin. Now, we haven't got to Joseph's story yet, but when we get to Joseph, we're going to see how absolutely important this man, this son, was in the history of redemption, in the story of redemption. So we can look at Joseph's life, and we can look at Joseph's story, and we can see that God was absolutely in control. And God always had a plan to bring Joseph forth from the womb of Rachel. God always had a plan to bring Benjamin forth from the womb of Rachel. Easy for us to say now, looking back, very difficult for Rachel to believe while she's sitting there with no child, with no children, while her sister has produced multiple sons for her husband. But Rachel's problem was not Leah. Rachel's problem wasn't her lack of children. Rachel's problem was her lack of faith in God. She did not trust God. And this is our problem when we covet. We do not trust God. That either it's not time for that yet, or perhaps we don't even need that to begin with. It could be either or. So ultimately, we must trust in His will and in His ways in all of our life while we hold firmly to the responsibilities He has placed before us. Now, I want to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here from our story that's specific to Rachel and Jacob. And I want, to, I want to talk about this general theme of coveting or desiring. What, what do we do with this when we talk about our responsibility? So, you see something. Let's, let's just pick a, let's just say a car, okay? And you, you're just one day watching TV and you see this car commercial and you think, man, I love that car. That's, that's my next car. That's the car I've got to have. The only problem is that car is a little bit beyond your means. And that car really is not maybe absolutely necessary for you. But just something in you, you want that car. You want that thing. And you decide that you're going to set a goal and you're going to go after it. And so you begin to work extra. You begin to do all of these extra things. You become very diligent to go after this goal of getting this car, this thing. Now, I'm not saying hard work is bad because hard work is very, very good. We are to work hard. Because we are to do whatever we do heartily as unto the Lord, Paul writes in Colossians 3.23. For God honors diligence. It tells us in Proverbs 13.4 that the hand of the diligent makes one rich. That God honors diligence and He will cause the diligent to become rich. But Proverbs 23, 4 says, do not overwork to become rich. It doesn't say don't work. It says don't overwork to become rich. 
what happens, whether it's a car or a house or a whatever it is. And we begin to put forth all of this effort to gain this thing that we are coveting. It's not to say that's always a sinful thing, but it is to say that can be a sinful thing. To want to improve yourself is not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. To spend your life working to become rich, the Bible says that's not a good thing. Is it a sin to be rich? Absolutely not. Many of the patriarchs of the Bible were, in today's terms, they would have been millionaires or billionaires. They would have been very wealthy men. So we can't say it's a sin to be rich, but is it a sin to overwork, to become rich? The Bible says, yes, it is. Does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? Y'all believe that? No, it does not say that. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. A lot of times you hear people say that. Money is the root of all evil. No, as a matter of fact, the Bible says money answers everything. (laughs) But it says the love of money is the root of all evil. So here's how Jesus, here's how Jesus put it. Well, let me tell you what Deuteronomy 18.18 says. Deuteronomy 18.18 says, For it is God who gives the power to create wealth. Jesus said this, You cannot serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other, or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 Who are we to love first and foremost above anyone or anything? It is God. This is why the Bible says don't overwork to become rich. That's why the Bible says don't covet what's not yours. Because this leads us to want to go after or to love something greater than even God perhaps. That's right. But we are to work hard. We are to be diligent. Why? Because we are to do everything as unto the Lord. Ultimately, we are to trust God in all things. With our children. How many He gives us. Whether He gives us any. Whether they're boys or girls. Or a mixture of both. Or either or. With wealth, we are to trust God with our wealth. We're to trust God with our success, and we're to trust God with our failure. We're to do that as we do whatever we do heartily as unto the Lord. We trust knowing that in Christ we have already been freely given all things. This is what the scripture teaches us. God has already given to us freely all things. Where? In Christ. God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, God's not withheld anything from us. But you might say, what about that car I saw in that commercial? He hadn't given me that yet. Maybe he doesn't want you to have that. 
Maybe he's saying that settling for lesser things when I have much greater things that you haven't seen yet, that you don't know of yet, that, that are yours, but you just don't know that you have them. We are made rich in walking in the abundance that is Christ. Christ is our wealth. Christ is our greatest wealth. He's our greatest riches. Christ is our life. We are walking in that abundance of life who is Christ. Christ is ours and we are Christ's. If you've been born again, you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to you. Christ paints this picture in in, in the parable of the vine and the branches. In John 15, he says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, the branch belongs to the vine and the vine belongs to the branch. They are joined. They are connected together. We have our children in here today. So children... You are not made righteous because you obey your parents. I want you to know that. Did you all hear that? You are not made righteous because you obey your parents. Does that mean you should not obey your parents? Should you obey your parents? Yes. Why should you obey your parents? Because God wants you to and God expects you to obey your parents. Why? Because it is right, the Bible says. You do not obey for a reward. You obey for it is right. Parents, we could learn a lesson here. We don't obey for a reward. We obey because it is right. Rachel was to trust God whether she had children or not. She was to put her trust in God and understand it was not Jacob's responsibility to open her womb. It was God's responsibility to open her womb. And in trusting him, she was left with waiting for God to do what only God could do. Because it is right, it was right for her to put her trust in God. Children, you obey to honor your parents. This is the fifth commandment. Honor your mother and father. And it will be well with you and God will bless you with a long life. It's the only commandment with promise, kids. That if you honor your mother and your father... It will be well with you. And in honoring your mother and father, who else are you honoring? Who are you ultimately honoring and honoring your mother and father? Children. Who? God. In honoring your father and mother, in honoring your parents, children, you are ultimately honoring God. So when your mom says, pick up your toys, or your mom says, don't hit your brother, or your mom says, don't do that, when you obey, you shouldn't obey because you expect a reward or because 
you know, mom's now so finally tired of dealing with you because you've learned how to wear her down. How many of you kids have learned how to wear your parents down? Yeah, see, we have some honest kids here. See, most of you just don't want to raise your hand because you know you shouldn't be trying to wear your parents down. So you shouldn't try to wear your parents down and then finally obey after you get them to promise that reward that you wanted. Now, what you should do is obey your parents because it's right to do that. And your reward is that you have the satisfaction of knowing that you've honored God and you've honored your parents. So we obey, not for a reward, but because it's right. And we honor our parents, and in honoring our parents, we honor God. And parents, you are expected, you are to expect obedience. How many of you parents expect obedience? You don't have to raise your hands, parents. Because how many of you parents have just kind of given up on obedience and you're just trying to tolerate now your children and you don't know what to do with them? That's not good. Because parents, you should expect, you are to expect obedience and not compromise. At the same time, you're not to provoke them. But you're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, it's not the mother's responsibility to do all this. The Bible puts the responsibility squarely on the father to bring up the children in the fear and nurture of the Lord. We live in a country where the reality is there are many homes where there's not a father present. So moms, unfortunately, that responsibility of being mom and dad, in a sense, falls on you, not in a sense, in reality. And, and so what's the church's role? This is why we're talking about this today with the children in here, because it's the church's responsibility to come alongside of parents and encourage them and to admonish them. Don't grow weary while doing good. Hang in there. Expect your children to obey. Children, don't be upset when your parents expect you to obey because they're just doing what the Bible tells them to do. And they're going to be responsible before God one day just like you will be responsible before God one day. So what does this have to do with our story? Well, it kind of goes to a heart issue. What was Rachel's problem? You can say, well, her problem was she didn't have any kids. No, her problem was her heart. Her problem wasn't her womb. Her problem was her heart. This is our problem our problem is not in what we don't have. Our problem is not often the thing that we're focused on. Our problem goes much deeper. Our problem goes to our heart. Children, why are you not obeying your parents? Why are you chronically disobedient if you are? Maybe you're not. But if you are, why are you? See, the problem is a heart issue. Parents... Why have you grown weary while doing good? 
and you've just thrown in the towel, that too is a heart issue. Rachel had a heart issue. She had a sinful attitude toward her sister. She had a sinful attitude toward her husband. And most importantly, she had a sinful attitude toward God. Envy and coveting, doubt and disobedience. Do you know what doubt leads to? Doubt leads to disobedience. So Rachel's real problem was not that she envied. Rachel's real problem was that she doubted God. She doubted that God would give her a child, so so she took it upon herself to make something happen. God allowed it. God used it for his glory, no doubt about it. But that act of Rachel's also revealed a condition of Rachel's heart that at the bottom of Rachel's envy, at the bottom of her coveting her sister's children and wanting that for herself, at the bottom of all that was a heart that was full of doubt and unbelief and sin toward God. Because God was the one that was ultimately in command of her womb. So envy and coveting, doubt and disobedience are first and foremost a sin against a sovereign God. Now we go over to Genesis chapter uh, 30, and we go to verses 22 through 32, and I'm not going to read those for time's sake, okay? These, after this, we go through a whole list of all these children that are born. Two born to Rachel's maid, two born to Leah's maid. Then Leah has, um, Leah has two more children of her own. And then finally, look at verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. God remembered. Does that mean God forgot? That's right. Very good, because God does not forget like we forget. God does not suffer from dementia. God does not have memory problems. God does not need to take ginkgo biloba. Okay? God's just fine. So when it says God remembered, what does that mean? It also says God listened. It also says God opened. It also says God takes away. So let's look at this verse 22. And let's focus on this as we close out this message. To say that God has remembered or God remembered is to say that God has moved in his time. This doesn't mean that God forgets us. It means that God moves and works according to his time and not our own. It's like saying the sun rose. In reality, the sun did not rise. To us, it appears the sun rose. To Rachel, it appears God remembered, but God never forgot her. She was never outside of God's will and purpose. The barrenness of her womb was well within God's sovereignty. It was well within God's plan 
and purpose for Rachel's life. It's just that when she finally had that son of her own, it seemed to her that God remembered. It's a phrase, but it doesn't really mean God now remembered because he had forgotten any more than saying the sun rose means that, that the, the earth is sitting still and the sun is moving around the earth. It doesn't mean, it just looks like that. God remembered means that God now moved and worked according to his time, according to his purpose and not our own. God listened. God not only hears, he knows everything. He doesn't just hear what we say out loud or what we whisper. God hears the thoughts of our heart and knows every thought that's deep down inside of our heart, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. He knows everything. To say that God listened is to say that God knows. Yes, he hears. He hears our prayers. Our prayers do not go unheard or ignored. When the time comes for God's purpose to be fulfilled, we see the fruit of our prayers in our life and in the lives of others. Prayer conforms us to the will of God. It's not changing God's mind. It's not God going, oh, I hear a voice. What is that? Who is, who is that? Is that my phone ringing? Or is that your phone ringing? No, that's what we do. God listened. What Rachel was saying is God heard. What made her think God heard? Because something actually happened. Her prayers had been answered. But the reality is the purpose of God, it was now time for the purpose of God to come forth. It was now time for something to happen. It was time for that child to be born. God listened. God opened. It says God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. God is the sovereign. He opens and closes what he wants, when he wants, and in who he wants, according to his will. Whether that's a womb that's going to bring forth a child, whether that's a job that you're looking for, whether that's a husband or a wife that you're looking for, whatever it is, God is the one that opens and closes. It doesn't mean you can't open and close. It doesn't mean the enemy can't open and close. This is why we need to be careful to live according to this right here. Because you and I can get outside of this book real quick. The enemy always is living outside the bounds of this book. But God never operates outside the bounds that the scripture has laid for us. And if we in good faith, trusting God, walk through a door, we think God is open. Listen, I firmly believe this. If God is not the one that truly opened that door, he knows how to pull you back or close that door for you. What if you walk through a door and it didn't just work out the way you wanted it to? Well, maybe God allowed you to go through that door he opened because there was something that he wanted you to learn through all of that. But that open door was not necessarily the end of the story. It was just part of the story. See, we have a tendency to want to look at everything as an end to itself. So this situation I'm in, it's just like it's, it's the end of everything. No, it's not. It's just a part of what God is doing. Don't trust in your situation, whether it's good or bad, easy or hard, what you want it to be or what you don't want it to be. Trust in God who is sovereign over your situation, and he knows how to guide you through those things. 
even when it looks like he has forgotten. Remember, he does not forget. He remembers. Even when it seems like he's not hearing, know this, he is listening and he knows all things. God opened. Jacob understood this as revealed in Genesis 30, verse 2, when he angrily retorts to Rachel's demand that he give her children. Jacob says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? It is God alone who ultimately opens and closes wombs or doors or all other things concerning his purpose in our lives. We must trust him whether he opens or whether he closes. Do you hear me, church? We must trust him whether he opens or whether he closes. And then she said this very profound thing. I want to read you the verse, verse 30, verse 22, chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb and she conceived and bore a son and said here in verse 23, God has taken away my reproach. God remembers, God listens, God opens, God takes, takes away. He took away her reproach. That was Rachel's cry when Joseph was born. Joseph means he adds to. He has added. Joseph does not mean he's taken away my reproach. Joseph means he will add. And when God added Joseph, the addition of Joseph took away Rachel's reproach. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. This name has much significance in many ways. When we get to Joseph's life, we're going to see that Joseph would add to his father's house. He would add two tribes from his two sons. He would add life in saving them from the famine of Egypt. He would add grace by recognizing the hand of God that took him away from his father and his father's land and extending that grace to his brothers that didn't deserve it. He will add. Joseph is a type of Christ, even in his birth, by taking away reproach. God took away our reproach by sending Christ. God did not extract something from us. He added his son to us, and in doing so, he took away our reproach. Do you hear me? God added Christ, and in adding Christ, he took away our reproach. It's a beautiful picture of Christ here in the birth of Joseph. We see Rachel pictured here as the church, as the bride of Christ. God remembered our reproach and our separation. He listened to the cry of the afflicted and the prayers of the bridegroom. You don't think Jacob was praying that Rachel would have a son? You better believe he was. He heard the prayers of the bridegroom just like the Father hears the prayers of Christ on our behalf. He opened the womb and sent forth the Son and in adding the Son, He took away the reproach. In Christ, our reproach is taken away. When Rachel bore Joseph, when her reproach was taken away, Jacob was ready to go to his place and to his country. He was ready to return to his Father. Christ took away our reproach and returned to his Father. 
The journey we are on right now is one of discovering the land of our Father that we have come into through Christ. You are, if you are born again, Christian, you are joined in reality to Christ right now. That's not a theory. That's not a thing waiting to happen. If you have been born again, you have been in reality and in life joined to Christ. Your life now, your journey of faith now is a discovering of what that reality holds. And it holds things that are past, that are present, and that are future. But they are real, and they are tangible. And this is the journey that we are on through faith in Christ. One day, the veil of time will be taken away. And we will see face to face and we will know fully even as we are known. Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. I believe that veil, that, well, the scripture says the veil has been taken away. Paul says, your problem, Corinthians, is that you see dimly in the mirror now. This is our problem too. We look in the mirror and instead of seeing Christ, we see ourself. And in ourself, we see what we don't have, what we lack. And that lack and not seeing Christ causes us to doubt. And that doubt becomes the root of all of our disobedience. It becomes the root of all of our envy. It becomes the root of all of our coveting. It becomes the root of every commandment we break. But when we see fully, when we know fully, when we understand that our bridegroom has purchased us. We have been joined to him. And we are now on a journey of discovery, of discovering the one that we have been joined to. So here's my challenge to you. And this is our challenge constantly. We are challenged in this area to constantly trust God in his sovereignty. We confuse, listen, we confuse our human responsibility as he commands our destiny with our human ability to determine our own destiny. Did you hear me? We confuse our human responsibility as God commands our destiny with our human ability to determine our own destiny. You are not the master of your destiny. God is. But that does not mean you are void of responsibility as he commands your destiny because you have it and so do I. We all do. We neither command nor do we determine our destiny. God alone does that. But he does not do that apart from holding us to our human responsibility in his plan and purpose in all things. I challenge you to embrace your responsibility as a disciple of Christ and as a child of God to obey him in his ways and to trust him to will and to work in you according to his good pleasure. Let me read you two scriptures, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. God commands our destiny, and His command of our destiny is complete and completely for the good pleasure of His will. So I challenge you to trust in the good pleasure of His will and the good plan and the good purpose He is working in all things concerning you in Christ. Let's all stand. Father, forgive our sin. Forgive our envy and our coveting. Forgive our doubting and our disobedience. Forgive us and heal us of the blindness that robs us of seeing all that you have freely given to us in Christ and all that you have and will provide for us according to your will and the working of your good pleasure. Give us the grace to trust you completely as you command completely our destiny in Christ. Father, we pray this not in our own name. We come bringing this request, not in ourselves, but in Christ. And in that name that is above all names, in the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen.